Great. It feels empty in here, doesn't it? Now they've all gone out. Sounded as if they were going to have more fun than we are as well. But anyway, we'll see how that works out. Let's read together, shall we, from the Gospel of Luke. This morning, as soon as made clear, we're talking about the cross of Jesus. We've followed the life of Jesus through to the point where we're through the, the, the trial and uh, the scourging and the shame that Jesus endured and talking about the cross itself. So let's read one of the accounts that you get in the Gospels, Luke chapter 23, and we'll read from verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes, casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, Gee, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished harshly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into our kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a right man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what had took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. <laughs> well, we'll have a look at uh, the details of this story in a moment. Just uh, the usual advert to start with. This is a cabin in Hydesville in New York State where strange things happened back in the 1840s. The Fox family had just moved in and they heard strange rapping noises in the walls. At, wood, uh, at night it sounded as if there was somebody in the garden sawing wood. And uh, at one stage one of the girls uh, claimed that she... Uh, said to the source of the noises, Here, Mr. Splitfoot, do as I do. And tapped out a rhythm on the table. And immediately, whatever it was that was making the noises, stopped and made the same rhythm. And they started to realise they could communicate with this thing. Well, this was the first sisters, 
And from what they did, within a couple of years, spiritualism emerged. The idea that you can contact the dead and talk to them. Were they faking it? There is strong evidence that they were. It doesn't matter. Within two years of that point, there were over 500 professional mediums in New York City, just down the road from alone. Because people were ready for something that would help them. Contact the dead. Be sure about life after death. Know exactly what life after death was all about. What do Christians believe about it? There are plenty of people still who believe that by using a Ouija board or something like that, which you can actually buy as a game from some games manufacturers like Hasbro, um, you are able to get in touch with people who've already died. There are other people who believe you reincarnate, you come back for another shot. And you may have lived life after life beyond before this one. What does the Bible make of it? What do Christians really believe about life after death? And more importantly, how does it stand up to the audience, to the evidence? Well, Thank you. <laughs> That's the great question that we've got to take on tonight. We'll look at it tonight, and we'll look at it next week too. And the question is, is there any proof that there is life after death? Are Christians right to claim that after you die, there's more to come? And have they as much evidence for it as the people who believe those other things? That's the kind of thing we'll be looking at tonight. But just for the morning, let's have a look at the cross of Jesus. It's the most important stage, I guess on the journey we've done so far through the life of Jesus. I've even worn a special tie for the occasion, and uh, it's important that we get this right. Last week, you'll remember, we talked about, the last time we looked at this subject, we looked at the trials of Jesus, and uh, said there were three trials in all, and what happened in each of them was basically the judge was judged. It wasn't Jesus who was judged so much as the judge himself. We looked at the events of the uh, bewildering night through which Jesus was hustled through trial after trial, and finally con condemned to death. And we said that of the three trials, there was Caiaphas, the Jewish uh, leader. There was Antipas, Herod Antipas, the king. And there was Pilate, the Roman governor. Uh, and they all had a different attitude. Caiaphas was opposed to Jesus. He just wanted to see him die. Anti uh, and he saw Jesus basically as a threat. Antipas was intrigued by Jesus. He'd never met him before. He wanted Jesus to do something special for him. Maybe a miracle, that would be nice. He saw Jesus as a curiosity, nothing more than that. Pilate was perplexed by Jesus. He didn't know what to make of him, and as a result, he saw Jesus as a mystery. What we were saying last time is you have to get beyond that point. When Jesus is just a threat to you, to your lifestyle, a curiosity that you, you don't really know too much about, or a mystery that you think you'll never explain, and come to know him properly before you can understand what all of this is about. Well, I don't know if you've ever come across the organisation Full Fact. It's one that I support, I must admit, because I think it's doing some important work. It's an organisation that just looks at the statements that politicians make and are claimed in the newspapers and so on and checks out the evidence as to whether they're right or they're wrong. And every week, it's staggering, they'll send you an email with their latest findings and they find the most incredible things that high-up people are saying quite confidently, which are being reported from coast to coast, and they're absolutely wrong. And full fact finds out the fact. Now, I was interested this week when I got their email and it said, Salzburg Airport does not have a help desk for passengers who mistakenly fly to Austria instead of Australia. Because I go through Salzburg quite a bit when I'm lecturing in Austria. I've often seen this, the runway with the mountains behind it. And uh, I've never seen anything like a, a help desk. Where, where's this idea come from? And so I checked it out a little bit. And full fact is, there's one post about it which has almost 50,000 likes on X. 
And uh, it says, if you're having a bad day, just remember that the Salzburg airport has a counter for people who flew to Austria instead of Australia. And another post with over 18,000 likes claims that more than 100 passengers make this mistake every year. They don't. They really don't. I had a look for those posts and I found one of them. And uh, then I saw somebody I had seen actually at the airport before. I'd never thought much of it. It's just an advertising board. It's a cheeky thing that just says, sorry, this is Austria, not Australia. Need help? Please press the button. And there's a fake button there. Actually, it's an advert for a, a tech firm which can help you with all sorts of problems with your, your business organisation. So it's just, a, it's just a, a funny signboard to get people's attention. Actually, nobody gets it wrong. Nobody flies to Austria and says, hello, I thought this was Australia, where are the kangaroos? Doesn't happen, never happens. Actually, if 100 people did it every year, that would be one every three days, wouldn't it? And that wouldn't really be worth putting up a special help desk for. So there is no such thing. And all it shows you is uh, that people jump to conclusions when they hear an attractive story. They press the button, they send the, 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 the uh, tweet on to somebody else, and you'll see this thing that said, not just uh, 18,000 likes, it's been reposted 2,433 times. And uh, people will jump on the back of a story that seems to make sense of something in an attractive way. Same thing's true with the crucifixion. Lots of people just don't understand it. And lots of silly things have been written about it down through the years. For example, um, Albert Schweitzer, who was a, a great missionary and a tremendous theologian, thought that the crucifixion was a tragedy. That Jesus believed that if he gave himself into the hands of Pilate, God would send a legion of angels, set him free, and it would bring about the end of the world. So Jesus put himself in that situation because he was sure that, Jesus, that God would send the US cavalry over the hill and he'd be delayed. Well, not many people accept Schweitzer's theory. And then there's Michael Bajant, who died a few years ago, and he's uh, notorious for writing the, the, the book The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which led on to the Da Vinci Code and all of this kind of thing. And uh, basically, Bajant was a conspiracy theorist. He thought that the crucifixion was all about Jesus making a secret plot with Pilate. And the reason the tomb was empty was because Jesus never died. And what happened was that Jesus was spirited away after he'd hung on the cross for a little bit, nursed back to health, and lived the rest of his life incognito somewhere. And so the crucifixion never actually happened. Again, not many people buy that theory. And uh, Bajant died having lost most of the money he'd made through uh, peddling it in the first place because there was just no evidence behind it whatsoever. Then there's the Muslim theory that you'll find in the Quran that it never actually happened. The crucifixion never took place. God just sent a delusion on people which made them think that they had seen Jesus dying on the cross. And there are two Muslim theories. One is that it was somebody else who died in Jesus' place. And uh, the other theory is it never ever happened. It was just a hallucination. But either way, Jesus was a holy prophet of God, and so God would not allow him to die, so the crucifixion has going to be fake. Muslims have more and more difficulty as time goes by defending that theory historically, because there's just too much evidence against it. But you get all of these theories, and uh, um, they're wrong. They're too simple. They're based on no facts whatsoever. What we've got to do is look at what was really happening, and that means examining the story. So we're going to do that for the next few minutes. I think there are three stages in what happened when Jesus was crucified. First of all, you remember that Jesus was tried through the night, 
And in the morning um, uh, was, was when the final trial happened uh, before Pilate. And so stage one happens somewhere early in the morning, up to about mid-morning. What happened in that stage? Well, first of all, Pilate offered to, to, to set Jesus free and the crowd said, no, we want Barabbas. And seeing he could do very little with him, uh, Pilate had Jesus scourged, hoping perhaps that there would be some pity for Jesus. He was dressed in a purple robe and the crown of thorns. He was mocked, spat on and beaten. And then Jesus, uh, Pilate gave up and allowed him to be uh, taken uh, to Golgotha, carrying a cross. And Simon, as we saw in the reading, uh, was conscripted to help him on the way there. Stage two is in the afternoon. They arrive at Golgotha. Jesus is nailed to the cross and hung up. The soldiers take his clothes and gamble for them. Jesus looks down from the cross and gives John, his disciple, responsibility for looking after his mother after his death. Passers-by taunt and insult Jesus. The chief priests and the robbers join in, and one of the robbers changes his mind and says, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. You've got to be special. We deserve what we're talking, but you don't. There's something bigger about you, and I'm prepared to believe that you're the son of God. Well, that's the second stage. And in the third stage, up to the late afternoon, you find suddenly the land becomes dark. Now, that sometimes happens before there is an earthquake. And there are often earthquakes in Jerusalem. And it would appear that on that day, that's exactly what happened. The sky suddenly became unnaturally dark, Jesus cried out at that point something very, very chilling indeed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was an earthquake. And back at the temple, the great heavy curtain separated the holiest bit of all from the outer temple. The bit that meant that nobody could see through into where God was supposed to have his very presence. That curtain split down the middle. It's not impossible, actually, because... Um, we know it was an incredibly heavy curtain, and it was made up of 300 different squares of, of, of very heavy, rich cloth. They were all sewn together, and so there were fault lines, and it was possible for something like that to happen. But it had never happened before. And maybe that's one of the reasons that you find in the next few weeks, a lot of the priests who served in the temple actually become Christians, because they saw what happened, and they realized this had to be something amazing. So yeah, that happened in stage three, and then finally Jesus said, it is finished. And his life came to an end. Now, each of those stages, I think, is important. And there's an awful lot you could draw out of them. But I want to take just one thing out of each. Because in stage one, I think you see very clearly, prophecy being fulfilled. All of the statements of the Old Testament come together. And they're completed. Things that seemed a mystery up until that day, suddenly you see them happening right before your eyes. In the second stage, you see that people are cared for. Jesus is there on the cross, but as we saw in the reading from Luke, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about other people and taking care of them, like his mother, for example. And third, peace was won. In stage three, when Jesus cries, first of all, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it is finished. Between those two points, you see something happening that's changed the whole of history for you and me. So let's have a look at those three things. First of all, prophecy was fulfilled. We do not have time. You could do a whole series. I'm not, I'm not uh, 
offering, but you could do a whole series just on these prophecies. There are so many of them. Uh, Jesus was betrayed by his own friend. That's in Psalm 41. He was delivered to the Gentiles. He died outside the city wall like the scapegoat did in the Old Testament. Uh, he hung on a tree. His hands and feet were pierced. No bone of him was broken. He was despised and rejected. And so it goes on, spat and mocked, silent before his accusers, 30 pieces of silver, the price of his money, uh, of his life. Um, uh, the potter's field, uh, he made intercession for his transgressors. He was praying for those who were, were, were hanging up there. His body was disfigured beyond human likeness. So he hardly looked like a human. And when Pilate said, behold the man, people were saying something absolutely pitiable. He'd been reduced to almost an unrecognizable form. Garments divided, horribly thirsty, vinegar to drink, forsaken by God. Big things and little things, but all fulfilling prophecies that are actually there in the Old Testament. Right through to the very burial at the end of the whole process where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come and take him from the cross and bury him in a rich man's tomb with an incredible amount of expensive spices, just as it said it would, would happen in Isaiah chapter 53. And uh, all of this is not just curious, it's happening for a purpose. We tend not to think about these prophecies nowadays so much, but in the early days of the church, in the first few hundred years, when Jews who knew the Old Testament were confronted with the story of Jesus, they could see in the Old Testament again and again, this has got to be Jesus, this has got to be Jesus. And one of the reasons that the Christian church spread so much across the Jewish community in the early years was because they could see quite clearly that all of those pointers from the Old Testament were pointing in one direction, one direction only, and that was Jesus Christ. So, what were these prophecies fulfilled for? Well, I think there are three reasons. First of all, when prophecy was fulfilled like that, as Jesus went down the road towards death and burial, it said something to him. See, remember what Jesus was, was, was suffering at this point. He'd been through a night when he'd been buffeted and pushed around. He'd been mocked by the soldiers of Herod Antipas. He'd been uh, cruelly treated by the Roman soldiers too. He'd had a crown of thorns rammed into his skull. And there were little thorns like, you know, the blackberries that grow in my back garden, whether I will or not. Um, they were big, savage thorns, two or three inches long, rammed down into his head, made into a rough crown. Purple robe put on top of his body when it had almost been flayed alive. Jesus had had the, the, the Roman punishment of the 30 lashes minus one. They reckoned that 30 lashes would kill you. And so if they gave you 29, you'd stay alive, but only just. And so with his body hurting and smarting and bruised, he had this rough purple robe put on it. And that was just the, the, the start of what was happening to him. He was, he was dazed, he was bewildered by what was going on. And one thing you find as you read through the story is that Jesus keeps on quoting to himself the scriptures. Because these prophecies tell him what he's going through. And when he sees them fulfilled one after another, it's as if God is, is, is saying, yes, this is my will. This is happening because I've purposed it. It's not haphazard, cruel, random suffering. You've not fallen off the end of the world. I haven't stopped caring for you, but this is what you must go through. So it helped to nerve Jesus, I think, in taking through. But also, this fulfilled prophecy says something to the world. It says something about the crucifixion, which runs against other theories that we looked at a moment ago. It tells us about God's purpose, that through all of this, God was not just doing something that afternoon. He was doing something that had been planned way back in history. In fact, before history itself, because the Bible calls Jesus a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. 
God's plan goes back that far. As he saw what we were going to be like, how far we were going to estrange ourselves from it, and God planned right from the, the very first moment how this was all going to go. So it says uh, to the world when it looks on at the crucifixion, this is not some deplorable event in history, some sudden catastrophe that nobody expects. This is something that's carrying out a plan that God had to bring the whole world back to himself. And so, of course, it says something to Christians too. What does it say to us? Well, it tells us about God's love. If God is prepared in the person of Jesus to go through this for us, to pay the price himself, and if he's following through a plan that's been working through centuries and centuries so that all of the prophets and writers of the Old Testament have been looking forward to it for hundreds of years, and all of the, 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 the sacrificial things that the Jews have been doing, half understanding them in their religion for centuries, point towards this one day when somebody hangs on a cross, then it's an incredible, massive plan. It's the biggest thing that you could possibly imagine ever happening. And God is right at the heart of it because he loves us. And he's moving heaven and earth quite literally to bring us back to himself. This is probably the place, it seems to me anyway, where Jesus was crucified. It was Golgotha, the place of a skull. Now there is a church in the middle of Jerusalem which claims to be the site of Golgotha. I'm not convinced of that. I think uh, this, this place, which is now called Gordon's Calvary, because General Gordon in the 19th century um, made uh, the idea that uh, this was Calvary very, very popular. And you can see it is the place of a skull. If you look at that bit of the hill that rises above it, you can see, see the two eyes and the, the, the outline of the skull? That's probably where it was. It's just outside the city gate of Jerusalem. On the right-hand side there, you've, uh, just out of shot, you've got the gate. And so Jesus died in a place where people were going and coming all the time. People were going and coming in of, inside the city. And In fact, you read about Simon, don't you? That he was just coming into the city when suddenly they seized on him and said, All right, okay, you can help carry this cross. And so Jesus died not on the top of a hill, a green hill far away. It wasn't the old rugged cross kind of thing. Sell lots of burgers, Josh. Have fun. Have fun. And uh, um, it, it, was, it was about uh, uh, the foot of the hill, uh, crosses by the roadside, people going and coming and, uh, and, and probably joining in the, 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 the jeering and scorn just for something to do. It was just a sideshow. And that's the way that Jesus died. In fact, if you go there today, and look at what there is at that place of the skull. You'll find that underneath the skull, there is a Jewish bus, bus station. <laughs> and people come in there every morning to go to work, get the bus at 5 to 6 o'clock at night to go home again, and never think about what happened on that spot. And there is nothing that could say more clearly that the world had no time for Jesus. It wasn't concerned about what was going on. And stage two... <laughs> What you find is that people are being cared for by Jesus again and again. He's not thinking in himself. This is a tragedy that he's been looking forward to, well, not looking forward to, but expecting, anticipating, fearing for the last, I don't know how many years since he discovered what God's will for him was. And coming towards the cross and on the night before you hear him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't you? Father, if you can take this cup from me, please do it. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Let that be done. And so he's headed towards this. And his whole mind is focused and concentrated on the awfulness of what's about to happen to him. And yet, he's thinking about other people. Sometimes people that didn't care too much for him, the people who were jeering and scorning him. And he says, Father, 
forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The other, th a, the, the two other criminals who are being on the crosses beside him, and the way that they were jeering, scorning him as well. And he had such an impact on one of them. He said, Father, remember when you come into your, uh, Jesus, remember when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, this very day, you'll be with me in paradise. And paradise is a word which means the king's special garden. A place where only the king and his associates are allowed to go. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just taking you with me. I'm giving you the key of the executive washroom. <laughs> I'm taking you to the most important place that there is. And you will be there because you believe in me. That's at the point when Jesus himself is at the point of death. And the soldiers, and one of them so impressed at the end, he looks at Jesus and says, surely this was a righteous man. And if you believe the other gospels, he went a bit further and said, surely this man really was a son of God. This is not just human. This is somebody special. Nobody behaves like this. And so as Jesus died, you find he says seven things, those seven things that are recorded in the, the four Gospels together. Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to John, uh, his disciple, here is your mother. Then, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then I am thirsty. Then it is finished. And finally, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now, when you look at those seven, the last four of them are the mysterious ones in lots of ways. They're the ones that give us a pointer to what was actually happening to Jesus as he went through his final agony, the most mysterious and awful moments of his life. Even I am thirsty, for example. He wasn't just saying, come on, I'm thirsty, I'd fancy a drink here. He's at the point of absolute torture. He's been shouting, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he's felt his colossal aloneness on his cross. And then to say, I am thirsty. Well, there's a, a psalm which talks about uh, the crucifixion and what it's going to be like, which talks about the thirst of Jesus. And his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth. And Jesus is clearly, because he spoke in those, in those scriptures again and again, talking about that psalm. A psalm that talks about how he's not just been forgotten by God, but by human beings as well. All of his friends have left him. He's completely on his own. So those last four statements are talking about what Jesus went through and the sufferings that he went through. And they give us pointers to what was happening as he went through a, 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 down a road that you and I will never have to go down. But the first three, they're interesting because they're all about other people. And so right up to the moment... When Jesus feels himself forsaken by his father, going into the utter aloneness that no human being ever suffered before and that God himself never expected to experience. Nonetheless, he's talking to the very last moment about other people. And there are people there, aren't there, at the crucifixion, who are affected by it as well in different ways. Simon of Cyrene. Now, Simon came from Cyrene in Northern Africa. He probably wasn't black like this, uh, this picture makes him out to be. He probably was a Jew because lots of Jews settled in Cyrene. He may have become a little bit black by the, the, the climate. But it's interesting, isn't it, that somebody from so far away suddenly becomes part of the action. And we don't know what happened to Simon afterwards. We just know that the gospel writers say, oh, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Who are Alexander and Rufus? Well, again, we don't know, but the early Christians clearly did. So it would seem that Simon became a Christian after carrying the cross of Jesus. 
And Alexander and Rufus were well known in the church as a result after that because they became Christians too. We don't, we, don't, we can't be sure. Alfred Edersheim, who wrote a great book about the life and times of Jesus and Messiah, says this, We can scarcely repress the thought that Simon the Cyrenian had not before that day been a disciple, had only learned to follow Christ, when on that day, as he came in by the gate, the soldier laid hold on him. And so unwillingly he's made to carry this cross. And even on the way to Golgotha, over less than a mile of carrying this rough wood and helping Jesus with it, he begins to realize, I am in the presence of God. That's staggering, isn't it? Then there's his mother. I've talked about his mother before. And from that day, it says, when Jesus died, they, this disciple, John, took her into his home. There's some evidence that Salome, John's mother, and uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, were sisters. And so it would be Auntie Mary who went home to live with John. But it's interesting that right at the very end of his life, Jesus looks down at his mother, who incidentally was not 20 years old like this one, in her 50s probably at this point, and thinks that my mother has got nowhere to go. There is no social security. My father's been dead for a while. Someone needs to look after my mother. And so he makes that arrangement for her right at that point. Joseph of Arimathea, who had been interested in Jesus, secretly believed in him, but had never been, never, never to say so because he was right in the Jewish leading circles of power. He was a Sanhedrist. He was a member of the council and he hadn't declared his allegiance to Jesus. He too was changed by crucifixion because he goes boldly to Pilate and says, I want to bury this man. What would normally have happened to Jesus would just have been that the body would have been taken and thrown into a common grave with all of the other people the Romans had killed that month. But he said, no, I want to bury him specially. And so he takes him down from the cross himself. Joseph's own hands Jesus off the nails, off the wood, took him on a stretcher with Nicodemus and probably some of his servants and took him and buried him in his own tomb. And Nicodemus was there as well. The man who came to see Jesus at night, do you remember? And you don't hear anything else about him after John chapter 3. Came to see Jesus at night because he didn't want people to notice that he had any interest in Jesus. But now things change and both Joseph and Nicodemus lose their cowardice. And come out of the dark and say, I believe Jesus has to be honoured. They probably didn't know anything about the resurrection at this point, but they believed this was a prophet from God, or the Son of God himself. I don't know how much they believed, but they believed he had to be buried properly. And so these people were changed by Jesus. But there's another more important thing about the crucifixion, and that's what you get from stage three. And here we finish. Peace was won. What Jesus did on the cross was not just suffer with nails and blood and stuff like that. That's not the important thing. Do you remember when that film, uh, The Passion of the Christ, came out? It was, a, it was a bit of a bloodthirsty experience. And I remember going to see it in the cinema in Exeter. And uh, I have this thing about the cinema. I, I, I like to get value for money. I'm, I'm Scottish, so I want as big a picture as possible. So I will always, if I can, in the front row. I've got room for my feet to stretch as well. And I, I like that. My wife hates it. Makes it gives a headache. But anyway, I won the argument that night, and we were in the front row, and we watched the film, and just as the credits were coming up, we thought, well, it's a full theatre, everybody's here, let's get our coats and let's go and, and get out quick. So we got our coat and started to walk up the, the, the aisle out, out of the, the front row, and nobody else was moving. It was weird. All these people who didn't look much like churchgoers or Christians or whatever, they were just sitting going, oh, wow, oh, wow. Oh, and they stayed that way for another five minutes because we got to the back and 
just let's watch what's going on here. And people started to move. But for five minutes, nothing much happened. They were just stunned by the sheer brutality of what the world had done to Jesus. And they got a message that night. But you know, all of the brutality, all of the nails, all of the blood, was nothing compared to what was really happening at the crucifixion. And that's why Jesus shouted, My God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't the physical sufferings that mattered. It was what was happening invisibly as God put Jesus through an experience which otherwise you and I would have had to experience forever. The experience of hell. The experience of complete forsakenness by God. And that's why at the end, just before he dies, Jesus comes up with one of the most important of those seven sayings. Saying number six, and it's this. It is finished. And when you read it in English, it's easy to think, oh, he's just saying, oh, it's all finished, it's over, my heart is broken, I'm going to die, goodbye, cruel world. He's not saying that at all. Because it's a Greek word, tetelestai. And it's a sort of uh, cry you would give if you'd scored a goal like Harry Kane scored this weekend from the halfway line. He just hits it and it goes straight into the... And it's finished. It's done. It's brilliant. It's a cry of triumph. And Jesus died with a cry of triumph on his lips because he had achieved something. What he'd done was take the suffering that we deserved on himself and won peace with God for us. Now, it's easy to understand. And many of us have heard this again and again, this simple gospel story. Three bits to it. One, Jesus takes my place on the cross. Two, I accept his gift. I come to him in faith and say, if you died for me, I want you to forgive me and give me a new life as well. And three, God clears my record and makes me his. I now belong to his family. I'm a child of God. It's never happened before. And it's only happened because of the cross. But you've also got to say this, it's always impossible to understand. There is no way we can ever get to the depths of what Jesus was doing there on the cross. And let me just finish by mentioning three things that we'll never understand. First of all, there's the mystery of God's judgment. Second, there's the mystery of God's love. And third, there's the mystery of sin and forgiveness. The mystery of God's judgment first. I just said a few minutes ago that Jesus went through hell for us. I wasn't speaking metaphorically. That's literally what happened. G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher of the early 20th century, wrote a great book called The Cruxes of the Christ in 2003, looking at all the critical points in Jesus' life. And of course, the cross is one of his big subjects on which he spends a few chapters. And he says this, Man sinned when he dethroned God and enthroned himself. He reaps the utter harvest of his sin when he's lost God altogether. Sin is alienation from God by choice. When I sin, when I disobey, I'm saying to God, I don't want to know you anymore. I want to walk away from you. I want there to be a gulf between you and me. Hell is the utter realization of that chosen alienation. If I walk away from God in that way, eventually I end up separated from him forever. Now listen solemnly. And from that cross, says Campbell Morgan, hear the cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That is hell. No other human being has ever been God-forsaken in this life. And he goes on to say, you know, we walk away from God, but he never walks away from us. He pursues us. He loves us. He can't come trying. He wants to reach us. And to the end of your life, he'll be trying. But in this life, Jesus knew what he was, right at the very end of his life, to be absolutely cut off. 
from God, his Father, something that had never happened to him before. On that cross, he was made sin. He was treated as if he was guilty of all that we'd ever done. And therein he passed to the uttermost limit of sin's outworking. He was God forsaken. We will never understand. We will never appreciate fully what that costs because we'll never be there. Second, there's the mystery of God's love. What about that? Why did God care for you so much that he would allow Jesus to die in that way? Jesus was God, so God himself was paying the price for us. Why would he do that? <laughs> you can't tell, can you? Love is not something you can, you, can, you can say too much about. The Old Testament talks about the way of a man with a maid and says it's one of the things in the world that you'll never understand. People fall in love and you say, what? Him and her? What does she see in him? What does he see in her? And it's impossible to tell why people fall for one another in that way. Or when, you know, you have a new baby put into your arms, and it's yours, and you look at it, and instantly there's a bond of love. It's more important than any other baby in the world, although you've only had it in your arms for the last ten seconds. Why is it that love moves in such a mysterious way? We don't know, but God's love went to that length for us. Back in the 19th century, a young man called Frederick Faber wrote a hymn about what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said this, Ever when tempted, whenever I am tempted to do something wrong, ever when tempted, make me see beneath the olive's moon-pierced shade my God alone, outstretched and bruised and bleeding on the earth he made. Take me back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Show me what it cost you. And he said, And make me feel... It was my sin, as if no other sins there were, that was to him who mirrors the world a load that he could scarcely bear. That was the love of God option in what Jesus did. And finally, just in a second, the mystery of God's acceptance. You see, through the cross, God doesn't just wipe out your sins and say, okay, your record is fine now, go off and don't do it again. <laughs> because we would be doing doing it again very quickly. We have a simple, imperfect nature. What happens when you become a Christian is that you become part of God's family. The Holy Spirit comes into you and gives you a new power to do the right things instead of the wrong things. You change bit by bit as a person, and it's what the Bible calls atonement. God and human beings becoming one. The word atonement in English didn't exist before the 16th century. It was only invented when Christians needed a word to express what had, had, had been going on on the cross when God won peace for us through the death of Jesus. And up until that point, most theological books have been written in Latin, and there's a perfectly good Latin word for it, but there's no word in English. And so they just took two English words and said, well, it's at one meant. What God does is make us at one with himself. So his life flows into us. We become his servants and his children. We live in his family, and we know that one day we're going to be with him forever. And that we will never understand, but we can be part of it. There's an old hymn, finally to finish with, it says, Pardon freely offered all who will believe. Anyone, everyone, Jesus will receive. Jesus, loving Saviour, died upon the tree. Hallelujah. Whosoever. That means... We're going to end with a hymn.